Okay, so I was a postdoctoral fellow at the Science History Institute. And during that time, I held the NASA History Fellowship. And as part of that, I decided to do a one-year study of the relationship between science and science fiction and education on television. Um, I looked at all dimensions of that. So I looked about half the time at Star Trek. And then I was also very interested in the ways that Apollo 11 was televised. The fun stuff though, and the part I really enjoyed was focusing in on, on the ways that science was depicted on Star Trek. That's what I really wanted to know. Basically, I wanted to know whether Star Trek was like Doctor Who, by which I mean that Doctor Who's origin story is that it began as a BBC program that was meant to teach children about science and history. That's why Doctor Who's a time-traveling doctor, right? So the idea was, was that he could go into the past and that students could learn about history and that he could go into the future and viewers could learn about science. And I wondered whether Star Trek was the same. Wow. If you're not hooked by that intro, you clearly hit this podcast by accident. Because what a fabulous question to have about the very theme of this show. I'm Mike Wong, and you're listening to Strange New Worlds, where today we are adding a whole new dimension to our examinations of the intersection between science and Star Trek by traveling back in time to examine the history of science and Star Trek, the story of how science and Star Trek danced with each other all the way back at the show's beginnings. Was it a carefully planned waltz, an intimate rumba, a volatile tango, or a casual contradance where they were sometimes partners and sometimes not? Well, to answer that question, there is perhaps just one person in the world who can speak so in-depth about this niche topic, and we are so lucky to have her on our show today. Dr. Ingrid Okert is a historian of science and media with a PhD from Princeton University. After graduating from Princeton, she was a Haas postdoctoral fellow at the Science History Institute in Philadelphia and held the History of Science Society and NASA's fellowship in aerospace history. Ingrid is a prolific writer and speaker, and you may have heard her work on Oregon Public Broadcasting, WGBH, WHYY, and WPRB. Now, I know you're all eager to stop hearing about her many accolades and start hearing about her research, but I just want to make a quick shout out to our mutual good friend Katya Luxem, a geochemist at Princeton, for introducing me to Ingrid. So thank you, Katya. Okay, everyone now buckle up, and let's take a look at the history of science and Star Trek. Dr. Ingrid Okert, welcome to Strange New Worlds. Thank you so much for having me on. 
You know, you have the distinct honor of being the very first historian of science on this podcast. And, uh, you know, with great honor comes great responsibility. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, I really appreciate the reference. Yeah. Uh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, can you tell us what does a science historian do? What are the big, exciting questions that you are trying to answer with this line of research? Oh, what an excellent question, Michael. Um, I don't think anyone has asked me that quite so eloquently before. Historians of science are really nerds. We're usually just complete nerds. Um, and we're fascinated by the ways that science works. And so the questions that we often have are things like, what is science? Why do people trust science? And how do people learn about science? And so there are lots of historians of science who have asked questions about the ways that science is structured in society. And again, I'm sort of almost alluding directly here to Thomas Kuhn's uh, major work on the structure of scientific revolutions. Mm -hmm. um, so again, I, I would say probably the most famous historian of science is Thomas Kuhn, and he's the one who coined the word paradigms, because he was really interested about the ways that society is set up and how science functioned within that society. Um, as a historian of science, the questions I'm really interested in are specifically about why people like science or why people maybe don't like science. And I'm really interested to learn the ways that people who are non-scientists actually impact the culture of science directly. And so my doctoral research was a history of science TV which was pretty fun. Um, I got to research the production histories of TV shows like Watch Mr. Wizard, Nova, and Cosmos. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it was really fun. And it was actually what brought me to Star Trek in a very roundabout way. So I gathered that to do good history of science, you need a solid background in both history and in science. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey through academia and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, I am an unusual case because I'm the rare historian of science who does not have a BS in science. Um, most of my colleagues do. A lot of my colleagues come in with either bachelor's or master's degrees in science. And I knew that I was always fascinated by science um, and I did not want to be a scientist. I just wanted to be in the room where science was happening. Mm. Um, and so I started out by studying science communication at Oregon State, which is where I got my undergrad degree. And there happened to be a phenomenal program in the history of science at Oregon State that focused on the history of nuclear science. And I thought, hey, that seems cool. So I took a bunch of courses on the history of physics and I was all geared up to study the history of this older agency called the Atomic Energy Commission. And I was really kind of curious about the AEC. I wanted to know more about like how it was advertised to the general public and what people thought of radiation. And that's the work that took me to Princeton where I was very, very lucky to enter their program as a doctoral student. And when I showed up at Princeton, I, I started to do the history of science focused on uh, history of physics. I was, you know, looking at papers by Oppenheimer and I was kind of thinking about maybe doing a, something focused on the popular reception and perception of physicists in the 1950s and 60s. Mm. And then I realized, actually, 
I was really curious about the science journalists. Like I was interested in the, you know, the people who were being interviewed, but I was also really interested in the people who were interviewing those people. Um, And I started to learn about the history of science communication. And I was sort of thinking about ways that people who were not on the science inside would start to learn about science. And that brought me to the history of science education. And so when I was looking around for a doctoral topic, I think, I don't know why, but I just kind of, I just kind of, I started to think about the ways that I had learned about science growing up. And I thought about television. I was a big fan of Bill Nye, the science guy, oh, yeah. magic school buzz. Uh-huh. And, oh, did you ever, did you watch Brian Greene? Like uh, elegant Bri- universe? Uh, no, I don't think so. But I've read at least one of Brian Greene's books and uh, it was fantastic. It was. It was. So well-written. Yeah. And I, and I, like, he was my idol growing up. I loved Brian Greene's work. And so mm-hmm. when I was trying to think about something to study and thinking about the ways that people who were non-scientists had really been influenced by science and learned about science, I, I think I kind of went back to thinking about PBS and thinking about science television. And I decided just to dive into this project to learn about the ways that science educational television had been created as a, as a genre. And it's kind of funny because so I did this whole project, it took me about six years, focused on science TV. And then literally, Michael, the last month that I was working on this, I had you know, already filed my dissertation. I was having lunch with a friend and she asked me, she said, how does Star Trek fit into this? <laughs> <laughs> and she knew I was a huge Trekkie. Like, and I was always totally into Trek. Like I was one of those people who um, bought all the VHS tapes of the original series when I was 12, like on eBay. Wow. Like I was one of those people. I was just like, <laughs> I love Trek. It was so cool. And so she asked me at lunch, hey, where does Star Trek fit into your dissertation? Like, where is it in this narrative arc of science television? And I remember pausing and looking at her and saying, well, it comes out in 1966 and goes to 69. Huh. Wait, actually, it happens to be in this one period of time where there aren't any regularly aired science shows in the US. Uh-huh. And I was like totally stumped by that, Michael. It was like, wait, it struck me as just being so strange. Like again, every in like every other year, there's like a science show that's on television in that period. And I thought, well, that's weird. Huh. Well, what if Star Trek in some ways was a form of science education in that period? And so I really wanted to dive more into it. And so here I was, I was finishing up my dissertation and I just had this like amazing question like was suggested to me. And I was also very lucky because a couple of weeks later I was awarded a grant by NASA to study the history of science and space on TV. And I thought, oh, well, science, space, TV, Star Trek would count, right? <laughs> <laughs> I would hope so. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and I, I contacted some people, uh, you know, who had awarded the grant to me and they were like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. And so that was how I started studying Star Trek. And that was, again, that was so to recap, I was unusual. I was not a, a science student to begin with. I got interested in history of science as Again, someone who was interested in science and communication, but I just kind of have continued to follow the thread all the way through. And that's kind of how I ended up studying Star Trek in my postdoc. 
All right. So before we dive too far into Star Trek, which I know we will momentarily, maybe <laughs> as a historian, can you sort of set the stage? You said that you were talking yeah. about the intersection between media, especially television and science and how science was portrayed on the small screen. So before Star Trek and after Star Trek, because you said that Star Trek yeah. you know, occupied this very special moment in history when there wasn't any educational science yeah. TV. Uh, what, what came before Star Trek and what was around after? Oh, I'm so pleased that you asked the question in this way um, because context is so important, right? And so there's a lot of science on television before Star Trek. The first science series in the US starts in 1948, amazingly. It's wow. called the Johns Hopkins Science Review and it's broadcast out of Baltimore. And what makes it amazing is that the Johns Hopkins Science Review is seen coast to coast. Um, so from Washington DC all the way to San Francisco. And that's kind of incredible. Again, science television is to me one of the most important forms of science communication in the mid 20th century and later because it is so accessible. Anyone can watch a TV show or almost anyone can. And so in the 1950s, there are all these collaborations that start popping up. They're mostly between scientists and uh, broadcasters and they're usually pretty small scale. So. You might have a university, in this case, Johns Hopkins, where a couple of scientists who are professors on staff will be working with local broadcasters to create a show. Um, another big show of this period is called Watched Mr. Wizard. And Watch Mr. Wizard is kind of like Bill Nye the Science Guy. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Bill Nye grew up watching Watch Mr. Wizard. Um, it's, if you can imagine, it's kind of like, it's like Bill Nye crossed with Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. You oh my have goodness. A, it's so yeah. cute. It's, it's really cute. Basically, it's about a scientist who lives somewhere out in any town USA. And every day, two little kids, a boy and a girl, will come and visit him. And uh, the show aired on Saturdays. And basically, Mr. Wizard and his two child assistants would do a fun experiment and teach students about the value of electricity or about the properties of sound. And they did lots of kind of cool hands-on experiments. And so if you're thinking about um, the stereotypical sort of image of a scientist blowing things up, chances <laughs> are it's a parody of Mr. Wizard from that period. Um, and in the 1950s, there's lots of images and there's lots of people who are doing Mr. Wizard-like stuff on television. Um, there's a guy named Hubert Alia, who's from Princeton. And He's um, one of the consultants for Disney and one of the inspirations for the absent-minded professor. There's also um, a couple of other people, Julius Subner Miller, who's also doing experiments on late night TV shows and talk shows. Almost, Michael, there's almost too many of these guys to mention. And there are a lot of guys, but there is actually at least one woman who hosts her own science TV show in this period. Wow. Her name is Mary Leela Grimes, and she broadcasts out of Boston. And she has a show called Discovery. No way. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep, yep. And as far as I can tell, she is the first woman to host a science show um, that is nationally distributed. That one isn't nationally aired, but basically they film it in Boston and then they send film canisters all around the US. And again, there's a way in which in the late 1950s, there's this total focus on STEM education. And uh, it's after Sputnik, there's a lot of federal funds available to try to encourage young boys and young girls to become the scientists of the future. 
And there's just a lot of excitement about it. This is when Walt Disney creates some beautiful animated specials about atomic energy and space. I would highly recommend that your viewers who are interested in like 1950s culture, watch the Man in Space series. They're beautiful. They're really well done. And so what's interesting to me, again, as a historian, is that there's all this, like this, this whole flurry of activity in the 1950s about science and space and, you know, what's going on. And actually the very first science fiction TV shows start coming on and the very first science space shows that start coming on as well. Um, there's a show called Man in Space, which airs, I believe, in the early 60s, which is the first show that actually depicted realistic images of people in space, where they used, you know, realistic kind of spacesuits, they talked about real issues. And so there's this way in which the public's appetite in the early 60s is really being prepped, not just for like science fiction, like serials or like kind of silly science fiction shows like Captain Video, but for mm -hmm. real science on television, especially science about space. So Watch Mr. Wizard is this super popular show and it runs from 1951 all the way to 1964. And then it's uh, taken off air, things have changed. Like, you know, it's a show that's like all about live cameras and live cameras don't become a thing in the 1960s. Instead, it's all about color TV. And, you know, it's all about capturing the spectacle of color. And so I remember again, looking at the archive and the guy who created Watch Mr. Wizard, he um, put together another show and tried to launch it. It aired in 1966. And at the time it didn't do very well. And one thing in terms of setting up context that's important for your viewers to know is that in this period, there really are only three stations. There's ABC, NBC, and CBS. Hmm. And so there's no PBS. And so if you're interested in educational programming, if you're a broadcaster, if you're, or say you're an educational company and you want to create a television show that has educational elements in it, you have to go to one of the commercial broadcasters. You can't go to PBS. So Mr. Wizard tries to relaunch a show in 1966 and nothing flies. And I remember looking at this because I was like, well, what could have been on at eight o'clock on a Thursday in the fall of 1966? <laughs> and the answer was Star Trek. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. That's when Star Trek aired. And I remember at that point thinking, huh, this is really interesting. Because again, again in terms of context here, basically between 1966, which is 1964 rather, um, which is when Watch Mr. Wizard ends, and 1974, there are no TV shows that are regularly aired on US channels that are about the hard sciences. There are no shows regularly weekly about physics, biology, chemistry, astronomy. There are some nature programmings. There, are, This is sort of the heyday of National Geographic's Jane Goodall series or Jacques Cousteau's films or Wild Kingdom. But there are no shows about astronomy. So like if you're a kid who's really obsessed by astronomy in the 1960s, what are you going to watch? And I kind of think the answer was Star Trek. 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, again, what ends up changing later on and why we have a whole bunch of shows that end up appearing in the 1970s is that PBS is founded in 1969 and it takes a couple of years for the funding to come into line. And so the very first science show, which continues on, and that next period is Nova. Nova starts in 1974. And then from Nova, then there's a whole flurry of really amazing shows. Like there's The Ascent of Man, there's 321 Contact, and of course there's Cosmos. And that continues kind of on through the modern period. So, you know, Newton's Apple, The Magic School Bus, uh, Bill Nye, all of those kind of happen in a post-PBS moment. But again, to kind of give the full context, from 1948 to 1964, you have one era of science TV and then from 1974 onward, you have another era. And really, what's in the middle, 1966 to 1969? It's kind of Star Trek. And I actually really think that the popularity of Star Trek really changed the ways that science educators wanted to reach out to audiences. That's incredible. Wow, I had no <laughs> idea that Star Trek had this sort of context in a historical sense. I guess a follow-up question is, do you think that Star Trek was the phenomenon that it was because there wasn't any other similar astro-themed programming at the time? Or do you think that Star Trek's existence stopped there from being other similar programming because it was already there occupying that spot. If, if Star Trek hadn't existed, I don't think that there would have been anything else that came into the zone. Honestly, mm. I don't. And what's amazing is that Star Trek, I think really in some ways happened because it was taking the best of the crew who had been working on the earlier 1950s and the 1960s shows. You know, I mean, not coincidentally, some of the people who worked on Star Trek were people who had, I'm thinking about um, people like Matt Jeffries, who was the amazing, you know, set and prop designer of the show. Mm -hmm. um, they had started out by working on shows like Man in Space. They had worked on some of these realistic uh, science shows beforehand. Um, and so there's a real way in which there is kind of this actual knowledge transfer. And I, I, I think that Star Trek did become popular because there wasn't anything else on. <laughs> I mean, I do actually think that in some ways that's true. I think it, it became popular because it was so good. It was so phenomenally amazing. Um, but I do think that there was a way in which for people who were so keyed up about space that, you know, they were really excited by it, that Star Trek was a natural outlet. And what's interesting to me is that NASA seems to have recognized that as well in that period the people who work at the communications offices in NASA in that period in the, the 1960s to the 1970s, they're very perceptive about what's going on. And they're trying to find ways to advertise, I should not say advertise, to promote um, spaceflight and the space program on television. And so they're working very closely with people who are uh, in the entertainment in industry. And when I was going through the NASA files, I was totally bemused to find that they had been, you know, working um, with the folks who put on the kids shows like Captain Kangaroo to figure out ways to, you know, have the captain visit NASA. The best letter exchange I found was a serious conversation between NASA officials about how, how to get Lassie, the dog, onto JPL <laughs> because the people who put together Lassie were like, oh, well, we would love to have an episode where Lassie visits NASA. And they were like, well, do we have to get security clearance for a dog? <laughs> and so I kind of, again, it's just, this is 
conjecture on my end of it, but I kind of wonder whether um, by the time that Gene Roddenberry reached out to NASA, which happened in 1964, by the way, it was pretty early. It was about two years before the airing of Star Trek. I wonder if when Roddenberry reached out to the folks at NASA, they were like, oh, we're so happy. This is going to be great. Like, <laughs> excellent. Because Star Trek was a show that from the onset was aimed, um, you know, had a pretty wide audience, but it was particularly aimed at sophisticated adults. That was kind of the initial idea was that it was going to be the best of everything. It was going to be the best science that would inform it and the best science fiction that would underlie it. So in your research, you decided to take this question head on and investigate why Star Trek is associated with science and how it got to be that way. You know, Star Trek today is so heavily associated with real life science that someone would even go so far as to create their very own science and Star Trek <laughs> podcast. So yes. <laughs> how can you imagine that, right? I mean, that's an outlandish idea. And that was kind of my first question was like, was this intentional? Like, uh-huh. was there, were there real conversations about this? And one of my um, main research questions actually going into the project was like, you know, well, was the connection between real science and Star Trek intentional? And the second question was, was Star Trek meant to be educational at all? And I learned the answer was very much yes to the first question and no to the second. Hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, let me just, yeah, recap. So you're, so to answer the question, yeah, how was, was science meant to be a real on Star Trek? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, and that's what's amazing to me. Um, the first letter I found was written in, in 1964 from... I think an Air Force colonel who Roddenberry, I think, must have known from his days in the Army. I'm sorry, I should say the Air Force because Roddenberry was flew um, airplanes during World War II. And I think what must have happened is he contacted some one of his old Army buddies and asked him for suggestions of people he would know in the aerospace industry because they were, there were very close connections between the Air Force community and NASA in the early days. And again, what was interesting about this letter was that the person writing back to Roddenberry said, well, I don't know anybody, but you know, I have some friends at the Rand Corporation and I'm going to set you up with one of these guys because I think he's a physicist and I think he'd be really excited about your project. And he can also be trusted to be discreet, you know? And so um, that's how Roddenberry got in contact with Lynn Harvey, who was a physicist at Rand and... Oh, actually, I think it's Harvey Lynn, um, who was a physicist at Rand and actually ended up showing support for the series and becoming one of the advisors for the show. And wow. he was a guy who would, he would like, it was amazing. Like he would like order all of these like technical guides, you know, all this technical literature because he was involved in some way in the aerospace community. And so he knew the places to get magazines and journals. And he fed Roddenberry and Roddenberry staff with all of these amazing images and articles about what was happening in space science at the time. And then Roddenberry made contact with folks at NASA. I never found that correspondence, like the initial contact correspondence, but basically as soon as NASA figured out what was happening, they were super excited. And they began sending Roddenberry's crew all of these images that they were getting from different space missions. And at that point, satellite images, of course, um, because man is not in space at that point, mm-hmm. or man is not you know, on the moon at that point, And they're only just getting sort of images from space. And so Runberry gets so much support and so much love from these scientists in the community 
who are just so excited that somebody in Hollywood really wants to take the time to depict science accurately on screen. That's fantastic. I had no idea that NASA was so proactive in that endeavor of making Star Trek as scientifically and technically accurate as possible. Oh, yeah, yeah. And at one point, actually, Ron Berry writes to somebody and they reply back. They were like, oh, we love Star Trek. You know, this is a couple of years in and they, they re- reply that, oh, we love Star Trek. You know, one of these days, you'll actually be one of our official NASA divisions. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's how much they love Star Trek. And wow. what's also interesting, which I found out, was that Ron Berry really wanted the actors of Star Trek, the original series, to be proficient in scientific terms. And so much so that he would actually send them material and he expected them to kind of keep up a little bit on it. So (laughs) because he would actually end up having them go out to um, conferences, like he would send them to science conferences to go and give a little speech or something, kind of a meet and greet. And he wanted them to be able to talk intelligently with the scientists they were interacting with. Um, I had no idea. Isn't that, that amazing? That tra- yeah, that tradition <laughs> yeah. still carries on to today. I had no idea that it extended oh, that so, so far neat. back in history. Just last year at the Astrobiology yeah. Science Conference, actor Anthony Rapp from Star Trek Discovery oh, came and gave yeah. a keynote speech at the science conference. Oh. Uh, yeah, it was such a special oh, thing. so neat. Oh my God, how was it? Was it? Did you have a lot of fun? Oh my goodness, yes, absolutely. I was geeking out the entire time. <laughs> um, oh my, did, did you get to meet him? Oh yeah, yeah, I did, oh, I did Oh my actually. God, that's yep. amazing. Oh mm-hmm. my God, that, that I have so much, oh my gosh, so much admiration. Well, what would be interesting to you then is to know that actually some of the actors involved in Star Trek, the original series, particularly sought out scientists to make their portrayal even more accurate. Um, and the, the person I'm thinking of here is good old Dr. McCoy, the Forrest <laughs> Kelly himself. And one of the things that he did was, I think it was in the second season, he was kind of interested in adding more, you know, kind of uh, more scientific know-how to Bones' character. And so he sought out people who were particularly like medical experts who specialized in space physiology and sort of, you know, astronaut training and all of that. And he wanted to ask them, you know, what what does it take? What does it take to practice space medicine? And he went out to Houston and he visited one of the centers that they had for space medicine out there. And he went out and toured a facility also in Pennsylvania. Um, And I was really impressed when I found that out that DeForest Kelly really put in the time actually to make sure he was doing a realistic job. They also similarly, the script writers combed magazine articles at the time and they would like try to figure out ways to make the props more realistic looking based off of what the ways people predicted that medicine would look like in the future. So like sick bay was a good example of that. I think I saw an article where they clipped out a picture of what, you know, a medical facility in, you know, 2022 would look like. And, you know, there were notes about how, oh, well, we should put this in sick bay. We should have this or that. Um, And that was very common. Again, there was a whole section of the archive all about ideas. And they were, you know, for the show, they were directly taking ideas from what was happening at the time. Cutting edge science informed the plots of the future. That's so fantastic. Oh, it was so cool. It was so amazing. 
I love Dr. McCoy just that much more now. And, <laughs> um, the, you know, real props to the producers and the writers. I think you mentioned 2022 for that sick bay reference. Yeah. So that's in two years, you know, if in exactly. two years, our, our medical facilities should look like uh, the sick bay on the original and Enterprise. I feel like I should also totally address the fact that there was someone, um, there was a research company that fact-checked every single episode of Star Trek. Like, wow. um, yeah, it was called uh, DeForest Research. Not to be confused with DeForest Kelly. And there was a lot of confusion on set about that, actually. <laughs> the guy who ran it was uh, named Kellum DeForest. Um, mm. Different guy, no relation to DeForest Kelly. But what he did was he went through every single script and he checked it to make sure that stars that were mentioned were real. He checked to make sure that um, the actors pronounced things correctly. The scientific accuracy on set was just such a huge issue. And what was interesting was then to read the fan mail that would come in from the scientists about it, because there were lots of scientists who watched the show at the time. I did not know about that fact checker for the original series. Oh, That's yeah. wonderful. Um, you know, Star Trek has had a long history of having actual scientists advise the show. Um, yeah. And for Discovery right now, there are um, two science advisors, oh. Dr. Aaron Mack and Dr. Mohaban Noor. And this tells me that the producers are continuing to take an active effort to make sure that science is done correctly in modern Star Trek. I was wondering as a historian of science and somebody who studied how science and Star Trek have interacted for many decades, what does this tell you about you know Star Trek right now, that they still have science advisors on the show? I think it's amazing, actually. I think it, it's a wonderful sign that shows that the folks who are involved with Star Trek really want to keep this believability going. And I think that in doing so, they're really carrying forth one of the central tenets of Star Trek, which is that believability and authenticity are the key to making sure that audiences continue to trust the show. And that was part of the reason, you know, that Star Trek was believable. Gene Roddenberry himself wasn't a scientist. That was not his background at all. But he really believed that if you had a show be super believable and authentic, then that was sort of a signal to the audience that you trusted them and you took them seriously. And one of the central points of Star Trek is that audiences are important and that you think the person who's watching at home is just as smart as the scientist who helped advise the script. And so I think that they're continuing to have science advisors is, oh, that's, that's so fantastic. That's great. So to do your research on how science and Star Trek um, intersected uh, in the very early days, you had to probe production files and memos at UCLA yeah. and NASA yep. and the National Air and Space Museum. How did you choose those archives and what specifically were you looking for? Well, one of the keys to being a historian is you cold call everybody. That's one of the <laughs> things you do. Um, and you always do that because you never know where people might say, yeah, come in and look at something. So I, by the time that I had reached Star Trek, I feel like I had done all this training. Like I knew how to go through a production archive. And I was very lucky because it's very hard actually to usually get into a show that's commercial. Like for any show that you are doing usually through like PBS, those files are open, but it's a special mark, I think, of just how wonderful Star Trek is that all of the production files are available at UCLA in their motion pictures collection. 
So, you know, there's something called a finding aid that when you're doing research, you start with immediately. And I think I went to UCLA's website, I found the finding aid, and I just started looking through the boxes and I zeroed in pretty quickly. You know, I forget, maybe I was looking through like 10 or 11 boxes of things that I knew I would love. But the cool thing with the UCLA collection is that they go through episode by episode. And there, in fact, is a very, very, very good book about the production history of Star Trek. I believe by Mark Cushman, I think it's called These Are the Voyages. And it has a, it's almost got like a kind of a, a note by note take of what these production files hold. And I just, I sort of, I knew what years I was interested in, right? So I knew I was interested in the start of Star Trek. So again, from 1964 to 1966, and Michael, I just dove into that material. Um, <laughs> but bet. you know, it's funny that you mention it because one of the other techniques that you have as a historian is that you're interested in people's networks. And so I knew I was interested in Star Trek. So you know, I went to UCLA, I knew that's where the papers were. You know, I was interested in NASA. So I went to NASA's history office, but Actually, when I was at the Air and Space Museum, I decided to go and look at a couple other files. I went and looked at the Smithsonian's files because I knew that Gene Ronberry um, had had a very warm relationship with the folks at the Smithsonian. And so I looked and sure enough at the Smithsonian, they had files from Gene Ronberry. They had files from William Thies, who was the amazing designer of all the costumes. Some of DC Fontana's materials ended up there. And I also actually looked at the Arthur C. Clarke papers, which are held at the Air and Space Museum now. And here's kind of a fun factoid. We were talking about conferences, right? And how mm -hmm. these Star Trek actors were sent out to different conferences. So for one conference that was held in 1967 in Washington, D.C., Gene Ronberry sent Leonard Nimoy out to the conference. It was a, a dinner, actually. It was the Goddard Dinner. And it was held by, I think, the National um, Space Society. And what was really cool is that, you know, he was there at the dinner and the dinner went really well. Everybody was pleased. And one of the other people at the dinner was Arthur C. Clarke. So he writes in 1967 to his, you know, his co-writer, Stanley Kubrick, this letter where he's talking about the updates to Space Odyssey 2001. He's like, oh, I have all these new ideas, Stanley, I'm going to do this and this and this. And in the same letter, he says, oh, and I went to this dinner and you'll, you know, you'll never guess. I was like right between Leonard Nimoy and Buzz Aldrin. <laughs> wasn't that great? And so I love that letter because it demonstrated to me the ways in which, you know, in the late 1960s, everybody in science and everybody in science fiction, they're all kind of mixing together, you know, and there's a wonderful way in which there kind of is this general community of people who really care about good science and making sure it's broadcasted. That's so interesting. I wonder if you see that kind of mixing, that community today you totally see it still. And it's an amazing sort of sense of camaraderie, you know, that you have. Um, and the main example that I can think about it is this incredible organization called the Science and Entertainment Exchange. Oh, yes. Um, yes. Which, have you heard of them? Oh, they're fantastic. I, yeah, I've, I've heard of them, but go ahead and explain for our listeners. Okay. Yeah. For your listeners who may not have heard of uh, Science and Entertainment Exchange, it's a group that is organized by the National Academy of Science. And it's basically a, I don't know, it's kind of this group of like maybe four people they're based in LA 
And they organize these sort of science forays and science meetups between people who are scientists and people who are writers. And they have amazing in-person events. I was very lucky to go to a couple of them in New York City when I was living out there, but they also have a lot of them virtually done now. And so what I've seen at those events is, again, those are opportunities for people who are in the entertainment industry to meet up with people who are scientists. And so you absolutely get this like intermixing that's still happening. And again, you've pretty much had that intermixing since probably, I would say the mid fifties. That's when you see a lot of that starting. Before the mid fifties, there's actually much more of a divide between the people who are quote unquote broadcasters and the people who are quote unquote scientists. Um, you know, I think one thing that I thought about a lot is how hard it was for people in the 1960s and 70s who were scientists and also interested in science communication. There's a lot of stigma at that period for people who do both of those things. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the amazing things that I've seen now, and I'm so excited to see, you know, shows like Star Trek, um, is that really it provides a space for people who care about science and are just as enthusiastic about outreach and communication to really explore and try their hand at trying to be like script writers or trying to influence a TV show. Right, right. Um, so Ingrid, was there anything from the archives that you haven't mentioned yet that was surprising or super exciting to find there? I mean, it was amazing, Michael. The archives are just actually incredible. And I just want to say, you know, a big shout out. I don't know who listens to the broadcast, but if anyone from the Roddenberry family listens, I would say a huge <laughs> shout out to them uh -huh. um, because it really is important to keep production materials available like that and accessible to the public. And I think Roddenberry donated it all in 1972, 1973, which I think was just so forward thinking. And obviously, again, he was like such a visioneer, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I found some stuff on stuff. I've even found like, a, you know, Mai Tai recipe in the collection, <laughs> <laughs> which is like, again, it's kind of fun, right? And I think what I really enjoyed seeing, man, it's just, it's hard to, I would say the fan mail. And I think one of the things that I like learning about is what people in the 1960s thought of science. And the fan mail is a great way to see that. There were so many people who wrote into Star Trek right? There are so many people who wanted to tell Jude Ronberry that they appreciated the ways that the scripts were written. A lot of people actually really appreciated the science realism at the time. And they said, you know, the show's amazing. You know, it's very clear that the show is lovingly put together. Um, I think my favorite fan mail, if you'll indulge me a little bit. Of course. Is, okay, so there's a guy who's a producer of Star Trek, the original series. His name is Robert Justman. And Robert has a secretary whose name is Sylvia. One of the roles that secretaries play is that they answer the fan mail. And that's super important. It kind of keeps people feeling like they're being heard and listened to. And so a couple of kids, they must be about maybe 12, 13, right in to the show. And they're smart. They realize they're like, hey, if we write to a producer, not just reading Ronberry, but like this guy, Robert Justman, maybe we'll get a response back. <laughs> and so they write into Bob Justman and Sylvia is the one who answers. And she writes the hilarious letters where they ask things like, you know, what's Mr. Spock like? And she's like, well, you know, Spock's, you know, hanging out right now in the office playing his guitar. And she spins these incredible stories about what life is like on the set of Star Trek. And she, and she doesn't have to, but she continues answering their letters for like a year. <laughs> and eventually lovely. they figure out it's not Robert Justman. They figure out it's her. And they actually 
call the office. And so she ends, and I know this because she writes them a letter to thank them because they've called the office and they, they connect finally to the real Robert Justman. And they say, we want to thank your secretary, Sylvia, who's been so nice. We're like, you know, 12, 13 by this point. And we really appreciate her very funny letters, Aww. which is just lovely. And again, it shows, you know, I think that was one thing that I was really impressed by Star Trek to see in the correspondence and to see in the production material is that, in every level, there's this real love for the show. The people behind the camera have it, the people in front of the camera have it, and the people at home all really believe in the importance of Star Trek. That's lovely. That's a wonderful yeah. story. Thanks for sharing that. <laughs> Absolutely. I think one interesting thing, actually, the fact that the show is so scientific is actually a very important point for the show because it's used to justify why it should stay on air. You know, it's something where one of the NBC producers for the series at one point defends it to the folks at NBC by saying Star Trek is the only example of scientific fiction on television, which I think very is very important. It's not that it's science fiction. No, 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 no. It's scientific fiction. So again, it's what kind of makes Star Trek kind of different in this period from shows like Lost in Space. Yeah. So I guess just to recap the findings from this project, you found out that science and technology was purposefully embedded in Star Trek from its very inception, but it wasn't necessarily supposed to be an educational show. Is that right? No, that's right. That's right, Michael. I never found any evidence that Star Trek was actually educational, which again was surprising to me. There's another show that's become very popular called Doctor Who, and that show started out as like, you know, slightly educational, actually, whereas Star Trek was always supposed to be a show that was entertaining. But I don't know if you've ever heard, there's another show that in some ways actually preceded Star Trek that has very close connections to it. Have you ever heard of Dragnet? No. Okay, so Dragnet is, is the very first show that Jane Roddenberry worked on, and it's a crime show. And the theme song of Dragnet comes from, and it's very recognizable. It goes, da, 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 da. And that's sort of, that's the, that's the tagline for it. Mm-hmm. And so if you've ever heard that, that's where it comes from. Okay. So it, but what Dragnet was known for at the time was that it was the most realistic crime show of the period, which was in the 1950s. And Roddenberry trained basically on the show. He was a script writer for it. And When asked later about why he had made Star Trek so realistic, again, he said, it's because on Dragnet, everything was realistic. And that's, and that was the key was to make sure that the show was as believable as possible, because if it was believable, it would be authentic and it would just be better entertainment. And so again, it was this interesting way in which um, Star Trek was very realistic. It was very informational, but not explicitly educational. You know, I guess Star Trek has perhaps never been explicitly educational in terms of teaching people about science, but it's definitely inspired plenty of scientists. And oh, yeah. it might even be educational in a in a more like ethical or philosophical sense. Absolutely. Completely. Yeah, I absolutely think so. And again, it was a show where early on, um, those elements were certainly recognized, um, not in the production material, I would say, so not in the letters between the people who were putting together the show, but um, in the fan mail. And that's really what drew a lot of early fans in. You know, I think actually Isaac Asimov, who was a big fan of the series, 
he also commented in letters to Gene Roddenberry that he believed that Star Trek really appealed to people who were looking for, in a philosophical way, the hero's journey. You know, it was, it was a return to many different archetypes that were just so resonant of the period. And in, in, in such the same way, you know, he connected it with the popularity of Lord of the Rings at the time. You know, he said that those were, you know, they were sort of classic adventure stories that teenagers in the late 1960s felt like they could relate to, especially in a time of turbulence like the late 1960s were. Wow. This has been super fascinating. This next question might get a bit meta, but Ooh, how fun. does Please. how does Strange New Worlds, this science and Star Trek podcast, play into everything that we've just talked about? What active role are we taking in this very moment to shape Star Trek's ongoing relationship with science? I think it's lovely. Um, I think I see this as being a continuation of the, of the fan mail in some ways. Like I yeah. think podcasting is another form of audience response. And again, as you know, like fan response to Star Trek is very key to the show. Um, you know, from the very onset, they had magazines that were dedicated fan scenes, I think what they would have been called um, about the series. And so I really, I mean, I think I, I was delighted when I heard about the show and I heard about the premise of it because I feel like you're doing a great job, you know, continuing to weave even more tightly the relationship between science, entertainment, and Star Trek. I mean, so yeah, I think you're doing a great job helping listeners understand that the show that they're so drawn to is based on reality. And I think that was kind of a message of Star Trek at the time that the future is tangible, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I could ask, why do you do science? You know, what draws you to science? And I kind of wonder if what draws you to science would be part of what would draw you towards Star Trek as well. Like, mm -hmm. what, what do you like about Star Trek and science? Like, as I'm talking to you about this sort of stuff, what are you, what relationships are you seeing? The first thing is that Star Trek presents, in general, a very optimistic view of the future. And um, it's, it's a view of the future in which science is very much embraced. And so I guess my yeah. philosophy as a scientist is that hopefully, little by little, I will help build that future or some version yeah. of the future where science can benefit humanity to a greater degree than it is doing so even right now. And, um, and that is something that so many people have wrote in at the time and said, and that's something that um, I think is still carries true. I mean, you're talking about earlier how inspirational Star Trek is. And I think at the time, it was certainly recognized that the show was going to be inspirational. And that was a, you know, a hope that people would watch Star Trek and then be really excited about what NASA was doing in the future. Um, and there were quite a few examples of people who would write in and say, um, there were three girls who wrote in who were college age who wrote in and said, we love the show so much. We all, we're all in love with Leonard Nimoy and we've decided to all take astronomy. And wow. so there's a real way in which, you know, enthusiasm for track really does carry forward into people's concrete actions. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. so I, I should ask you, like, is there, um, I know you study planetary science, right? Yeah. I mean, do you think your, your ideas of what space looked like has been affected by the imagery of Star Trek? Yeah, I would say so. You know, fast forward between the 60s where you were saying like we had very few images from outer space yeah. to today where we have 
dozens of spacecraft exploring Absolutely. the solar system and beyond. We have such amazing imagery of space and to see yes. those images make their way subtly into modern Star Trek is actually very thrilling for me as a planetary scientist to recognize oh, that came from the Cassini orbiter or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> well, and again, what I think would be exciting for you to know is that the images that they had at the time, they, again, I, I look at some of the shots of Star Trek now where they're just, you know, displaying pictures of what such and such looked like or such and such planets and knowing that those are images that NASA had supplied them with. I mean, that's amazing. Again, they were doing the same kind of at the time. And one thing that I always forget but it's important to keep in mind is that we didn't even have a picture of the earth necessarily until the mid sixties. Right. Right. You know? And so people were not as familiar with what an actual planet looked like. <laughs> I mean, isn't that amazing? Yeah. We all think yeah. about the pale blue dot now, but you know, we didn't really necessarily have that in our consciousness as a culture, which is super cool, but it's also super mm -hmm. cool as you're explaining um, about the relationship between, again, the very close relationship between Star Trek now and NASA. And that's so cool that they're feeding images in directly from like the Cassini orbiter. That's so cool. Well, Ingrid, this has been an amazing conversation. I've really loved every moment of it. I just Thank have... you so much. This has been really <laughs> delightful. You've asked such insightful questions, Michael. I have one last question for you. For those listeners who want to be able to follow your amazing work, how can they do that? Well, I am very active on Twitter. So you're uh, welcome to go and find me at Ingrid underscore Rocket uh, on Twitter. And, you know, sometimes I have different lectures that I talk uh, more about Star Trek at, or I write some articles from time to time. Uh, but please feel free to follow me on Twitter and I would be happy to follow you back. That was Dr. Ingrid Okert, a historian of science and media. I can't begin to tell you how lucky I feel to have discovered Ingrid's body of work. It was so cool to find out that Star Trek's connections to NASA and to science run so deep, and that we on Strange New Worlds are actually a part of a tradition of purposefully melding science and Star Trek that dates back to the 1960s. There is nothing quite like finding out that you belong to something bigger than yourself. As a planetary scientist, I've long known how the cosmos can make you feel that way. But what I didn't know was that the history of science and Star Trek could make me feel that way too. This podcast has always been fun to make. That's primarily why I do it. But my conversation with Ingrid has put making this podcast into a whole new perspective. It is an honor to be a part of the continued tradition of Star Trek fan mail and love letters, as Ingrid so eloquently put it. You know, in a way, that's exactly what my weekly responses to Star Trek Discovery's third season are. I didn't even realize it when I started making them. But now, I can't think of those episodes in any other way. Keep enjoying Discovery, everyone. And until next time, I'll see you out there.